Today is September 19th, 2021. We are reading from the big book of AA, pages 22 to 23. Marcy will be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share by Jim H. So Marcy, would you read, please? Thank you. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all of its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why, once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer that riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into a system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of all alcohol will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem with the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of a man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth, And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. Thank you, Marcy. Now we will have approximately 20 minutes share on this reading by Jim H. of Central New Jersey. Jim, would you care care to share, please? Uh, Sure, thanks. Hi, my name is Jim H, and I am a compulsive overeater and a food addict. Um, Let's just start with the first paragraph. Why does he behave like this? That's a good question. Uh, Hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation. Why is it that he takes that one drink? Um, Before I came into the program, uh, I have made my way up to 535 pounds. I I had heart disease. I had psoriatic arthritis, I had thyroid cancer, um, I had many other diseases, which would probably take 20 minutes to list. And I was not a good, a healthy person. And I knew that every bite that I took was just 
another thing that not only was it killing me, but I knew how uncomfortable it was and I knew what pain it was going to cause, not just the physical, but also the emotional as well. And I just couldn't stop. I, I just didn't want to stop. Um, I went through many humiliating experiences and it just wasn't enough to make me see that to make me want to do something to change toward the end um, in I've been in recovery for 10 years now. Um, it was about 10 years ago and this it was in June or it was July of 2011 and I had another medical emergency. I'm not going to get into it, but um, it's kind of gross. And I found my way at the, I, I, were, I, I was bleeding from between my legs. I couldn't see it because one, I couldn't bend over and two, I couldn't see. 535 pounds is not a whole lot of room to look. I went to the emergency room. Um, they were not very nice there. And they told me I needed to go see a vascular surgeon. I made an appointment. And I got there and I'm sitting there without my pants on. I was asked to, I just didn't take them off. And waiting for the doctor to come in and he comes in, he looks at me and says, your whole problem is you need to weigh 190 pounds, turns around and walks out of the office. Never examines me, never tells me what I can do, just dismisses me. And it wasn't the first time that this happened to me at a, with a doctor of being just dismissed because I was morbidly obese. And so I left and I, I was humiliated. And by the way, he was a heavy man himself. It's not like he was completely fit. Um, I was humiliated. Um, I just didn't, it was so demoralizing. Uh, I remember I left and I was sobbing and I wanted to trash his office. You know, the <laughs> not a sane person's thoughts. And I left there and I drove home and I stopped and I bought food and shoved my face and sobbed for three days uh, because I just couldn't do it. That was finally the straw. That was this. I was 46 at this point. So it took a long time to get to the point where I finally had enough. Um, but it took a long time to get there. I had so many more experiences like that throughout the years of. You know, my chiropractor, who I had been seeing since I was 18, um, telling me he wouldn't treat me anymore because he was afraid I was going to break his table. So I couldn't go to the chiropractor. I had a friend of mine who I've known since we were teenagers um, who had annual parties, and he stopped inviting me to his parties because he said that he felt like I, he had to take care of me because I would just go and sit in the corner. Um, that didn't make me do it. And so it was just all these things. And uh, I spent many years, the last uh, probably five or six years before recovery, I used to get cellulitis, which is a skin infection. And it was because there would be a scratch and it would get in. And it was because I was morbidly obese. And I was in the hospital probably once a year with cellulitis for like the last five or six years. And it's, it, it's a, you know, if that gets into your bloodstream, that's extremely dangerous. But I kept eating. I just kept eating because I just, I knew I had to stop. I knew that this was going to destroy me, but I just didn't care. It's really what it boils down to. I can look back and say, I just didn't care. I just really didn't care enough to do it. Um, the last time I came out of the hospital, I remember I came home and I was exhausted because I couldn't sleep and 
um, my sister came, one of my sisters came to my apartment and she was furious with me and wanted to talk about, I wouldn't talk to her. She didn't talk to me for a few weeks after that because she was trying to get me to take care of myself. And I just, I just wouldn't do it. And no matter how many times people would say to me, can't you see what this is doing to you? Um, it just didn't register with me. I, I know it, I heard it, but I just really didn't want to do anything about it. And in 2010, in September of 2010, I had congestive heart failure for the second time. Uh, this time I was in my apartment, I live alone. I couldn't breathe, it was like midnight. I couldn't breathe. I was so delusional, I got up and thought I'll drive myself to the emergency room because I didn't want to call anybody. And I almost passed out. I had to call the ambulance because I just I could not breathe at all. Um, they came. It took seven people to lift me into the obesity ambulance that they had to call. Um, I had heart failure. If I had passed out, I would have died because when I got to the hospital, um, I put out four liters of fluid. That's how much fluid was in my body. And what and then I had to go get a cardiac catheterization and I was diagnosed with moderately severe heart disease. And how did I respond to that? I went on a binge that lasted for nine months. I ate more. I came home and ordered more food. I just was not rational. I just there is no rack, there's no rationalizing with, with this disease. Um perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably. Um, so for me, and this is just for me, the answer to this is that I'm an addict. I am just a full-blown addict, and this is just what I'm going to do. There's really no other explanation further than that for me. Um, I've abused food. I've abused food. Um, food. I said food twice because it's really that important. Um, alcohol and drugs and gambling, and sex and all that stuff. I am just, if there's a substance or a behavior that can be abused, I've done it. And for me that, you know, my sponsor said to me once when I kept asking her why, well, why this, why that? And she said to me, you know, you need to stop asking yourself why, because you're never going to get a satisfactory answer. Um, at first, it annoyed me um, to no end, but she was right. I'm never going to get a satisfactory answer to a lot of the whys that I had in my life. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? It's not that it's not important for me anymore of why. What's important for me is, as I've learned through recovery, is what is the next right thing? What is the next right thing that I can do? Um, and, you know, I, I did find my way in um, after that doctor debacle. I found my way at an outpatient rehab center in Manhattan. And um, even there, you know, the, the woman who ran the food program, her theory is that it's all a matter of brain chemistry, that at my brain reacts differently to other certain substances. For me, it's sugar, flour, wheat. Um, and when my body gets it, it's this trigger that goes off that, oh, this is a great substance, I want more. It just creates that 
phenomenon of craving. And um, now going into the next pattern, and that is what her belief is. Um, for me, that works because it makes a lot of sense. Um, going into the next paragraph, um, keeps away from it for year, months or years. He reacts like much other. He reacts much like other men. Theoretically positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mentally sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. I know, I know that if I took sugar, if I took flour, if I took in those substances, that that would just be the end of it. I wouldn't be able to stop because I know for 46 years of my life, I couldn't stop. I mean, I started abusing food when I say seven. I even think it was earlier than that because I always remember food just being a part of my life and always wanting more and never being satisfied with anything and not understanding why nobody else felt like this of I had to sneak food. I had to hide food. I used to wait to get up until three in the morning when everyone was finally asleep in my house so I could go get food in the kitchen. Because I'm one of six kids and we lived in a very small house. So anytime anybody went into that kitchen, everybody knew. I thought I was so clever and sneaking things and nobody knew. Everybody knew. I mean, it really, the cabinets creaked. You could see the kitchen. And it was just like, it, 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 but it was just, I didn't care. I had to get it. And that's why I started doing it at three in the morning. Because um, my mother never went to sleep, so I had to wait till that long. And then I'd have to go and find it. And then in the morning, everyone would go, what happened to this? And I'd be like, I have no idea. I have no idea where it went. And so now I know that if I take it, my body and mind will react to it so differently that it's really not worth it for me to do it right now it, anymore. It's not. Um, you know, when I came home after the catheterization and, you know, having diagnosed with moderately severe heart disease, which doesn't sound really good. And I have one artery in my heart is blocked 95%. And they can't do anything with it because to do um, anything would actually push the blockage into my heart and make it worse. So I came home and I, I cannot tell you my amount of food increased after that point. And I could not stop. I could not stop. And I know for a fact that if I even was, I'm not even tempted anymore. That took many years for that to happen. I mean, I'm in program recovery for 10 years. That didn't just magically happen. For the first couple of years of program, I couldn't go anywhere where there was a trigger food for me. There was just no place that I could go. I had to be really very careful. Um, but I know, now I can because I just know this is just not my food. It's not my food. It's not my substance anymore. And I can avoid it. And I can go and I can be around and I can be in life and it, it's okay. It's not something that I have to, uh, the temptation, I have to fight that. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that every once in a while I'll be like, well, that looks good. But immediately I'm like, now, oh, no, that's just not for me. It would destroy me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. 
So these observations would be academic and pointless. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. So yeah, for me, it's why he started on that last bender. I don't really know why I, I did it. I would be convinced I have to stop. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to change my life. And the next thing I know, I was so deep into the food, I had no idea where it even began. Um, and, you know, I would make up excuses and make up alibis of like, I was hungry, you know, it's the weekend, I can start Monday. Um, I needed to get one last thing in. Oh, I already had it in my house, so I may as well finish it. <laughs> Anything, any excuse I could have made. But it just was, they were just all lies. I could not see what lies they were. And, um, and so I think it is, for me, I think it's a body-mind thing. I think it is the fact of the physical craving, but it's also the mental obsession. I am, I have obsessive thoughts about anything. I can obsess over anything, but especially food, of like, oh my God, I just look so good, and wouldn't that be great? And oh my God, I, if, I ha if I don't have that experience, then I'm missing out on life, and I'm not living life, and it, is all these lies I would tell myself. And I would just, no matter what I would do, I would be somewhere and I would spend the day eating from the time I got up in the morning to the time I went to bed, which is not an exaggeration. You don't get to be 535 pounds by nibbling at stuff. Although I would tell people, oh, you know, I don't really eat that much and I wouldn't eat a lot in front of people. But then when I would leave, I would go buy a bunch of food so I could eat it in private. Um, and I thought that nobody knew that I had a problem with food. <laughs> like, nobody knows. Nobody knows what, that there's an issue going on. Um, and I do love the analogy of uh, beats him, <laughs> someone who has a, ha a headache and he beats himself on the head with the hammer. I always find that to be very funny. Um, once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Um, I have notes in my book, and I was trying to read it, but I can't read what it says. Um, but I had no idea. I couldn't explain to people. When people said to me, why are you doing this? Why can't you just stop? You have no willpower. Heard that my entire life, and every time I heard it, it made me feel worse. And when I felt worse, I just ate more. There was no way of escaping it. And, you know, yeah, and it goes it kind of into the last paragraph, how true, few real, and in a big way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. Oh, my family knew, my family was ready to stage an intervention that didn't happen. Um, even when I got into recovery, and I was doing it, and I was in, and I had, was in for six months, and I lost like 100 pounds, and it didn't even look like I lost any weight because I was so big, and they still didn't believe me. They didn't believe that I had changed. They, they had been through too many experiences with me to know that, or to count on the fact that I was actually doing something that was going to work, because I had been on so many things. When I was 25, I joined a 
uh, a weight loss program. And I got down to weigh like a really great weight. I was thin, I was happy, and I thought, I have the answer to everything now. It's about being thin. Well, right after that, I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, and I put all my weight back on in three months. So apparently, I didn't have the answer. <laughs> so they've seen this. They had seen this behavior for them to truly believe that something was different. Um, and I... I love the line, will rouse himself from his lethargy. Oh my God, I didn't move. I didn't move off the couch unless I needed to go to the bathroom or I was going into the kitchen. Uh, just plain and simple. I didn't care. I didn't really care if I lived or died. And that's basically what it boiled down to. And I didn't really think it mattered. And I could not verbalize that at the time. But I can see that's just where I didn't really think it mattered if I lived or died. I didn't think I deserved to have a happy life. I still struggle with that. <laughs> I'm getting better. Um, yes, I do deserve to have good things in my life. But there are many things that I am still working on. Just because I'm 10 years in, I don't have all the answers. I will never have all the answers. And I am okay with that. God has all the answers. And um, as long as God does, I fully trust that God will guide me in the right path of what I need to do next. And that did not come very easily either, but it's just been the last five years of working in the big book exclusively with my sponsor that it has just freed me to, to truly, sorry, truly trust in God. And I have experienced many things and I have experienced forgiveness of things I never thought I could forgive. And um, I, I just believe, I fully believe and I fully have trust in my higher power that he will guide me where I need to go. And it took a lot of work and it's constant work. I have to work at it every day. It's not something that I can just say, oh, I'm done. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to learn anything else. Because that just is just a surefire way of me just going back to weighing 500 pounds. And my body cannot afford that. I have done enough damage to my body over the years that I am uh, still suffering the consequences of that. Um, according to my time, I am almost out of time. And... That goes so much faster when you're speaking than when you're listening. Because <laughs> I feel like I haven't said anything. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just ending it is that recovery is a great thing. It truly is. And it's worth all the work. It's worth all the hard work and the pain to get to where I am. And so being it's just about 20 minutes, uh, I'm going to stop there.